Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll update you on some interesting sustainability news while Tom looks at an incident in Vancouver. Joe will review a couple of notable airworthiness directives while I look at a huge merger taking place in India. Finally, I'll see what the latest is with the two new narrowbodies not built by Boeing or Airbus. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And Joe, sustainability, what is it? What does it mean? Tell me everything. <laughs> I don't think I can go quite that far in a half hour podcast, Tom, but uh, <laughs> there is a lot going on in the world of sustainability, particularly over this last week or so. Um, so let's begin at the beginning. Earlier this week, Rolls-Royce revealed that they've been working with EasyJet. Um, well, we knew that anyway, to um, develop a hydrogen powered commercial aircraft engine, but they have met a major market milestone with the first successful test run of the engine. So I think it was back in September, Rolls-Royce first presented its test engine, which it calls the AE2100. Um, And it has been kind of developing that and making sure it can run on hydrogen. But now it's actually been run on the ground and not very fast. Um, You know, this might not seem like a big deal, but it actually is because it's proof of concept. You know, it proves that a jet engine can be run on hydrogen, which is great news. Um, So with EasyJet, they're working together and are going to run tests on two different Rolls-Royce engines. There's the AE2100, which is designed for a turboprop aircraft. And then there's also a Pearl 15 jet engine, which is generally used on the Bombardier Global Express 550, um, 5500 and 6500 business aircraft. I don't talk about those planes very often, so I always fall over their names. I find Um, it interesting that it's EasyJet involved because they don't use any Rolls-Royce engines, do they? They don't, and they don't fly any turboprops or business jets, but they are often doing some really interesting stuff. They did a load of really interesting stuff with laminate airflow a couple of years ago, and um, you know they've got lots of kind of demonstrators. They like to fund all these different research projects, so good on them, I say. Um, so that's over its first hurdle. Great news. Um, on to news number two, um, which hasn't even been covered on Simple Flying yet, so you're hearing this straight from the horse's mouth. Um, but a group of aerospace technology companies have joined together in a big collaborative consortium to develop um, a combined hybrid electric and water-enhanced turbofan engine. Um, So this is a future aircraft propulsion system. And the consortium, really interesting, it's all the big names in kind of engine technology, including MTU Aero Engines, Pratt & Whitney, Collins Aerospace, GKN Aerospace, Airbus. There's a bunch of universities and educational institutions involved in this as well. Um, They call the project the Sustainable Water Injecting Turbofan Comprising Hybrid Electrics Project. Um, But you can break that down into its acronyms and just call it the SWITCH project, which is a lot easier to get your head around. Um, It's a bit complex. I don't want to get into too much of the nitty gritty. But basically, they're developing a novel propulsion concept that combines two revolutionary technologies into one. So the first one is water-enhanced turbofan or WET, um, which apparently makes the kind of normal aircraft engine a lot more efficient by involving water in the process. Please don't ask me to explain it 
but I, I will definitely put some technical document it. links in the article when I put it on Simple Flying. Um, but apparently, yeah, it improves the efficiency a lot. The other one is hybrid electric propulsion technology, which we kind of know about, um, but obviously involves having batteries on the plane and using electricity as well as um, normal fuel for engines um, to increase the efficiency. So what the project's looking to do is combine these two ideas into one. Um, they're going to be uh, building and testing a hybrid electric um, GTF engine. So they're, they're doing all this on the Pratt & Whitney GTF engine architecture, which is obviously one of the kind of most widely used engines in the world. So a really good proof of concept. Um, they're going to be building the hybrid electric GTF by 2025. And then after that, they're going to work on integrating the wet propulsion system into that engine. So like I say, quite technical and complicated, but really interesting and, you know, great news in terms of our green goals. Um, the last one I just wanted to mention was announced just this morning, actually, at the Airbus Sustainability Summit. Uh, because I, I'm, as well as being a bit of an av geek, I'm a bit of a petrol head. So I was quite excited to hear that Airbus is now working with Renault to develop next generation batteries. Um, if you're at all interested in sustainability, you will know that battery technology is one of the biggest challenges for aerospace to overcome if any sort of electrification or hybrid electric solutions are going to work long term. So this is quite exciting. You know, Renault has a lot of the same problems. It wants batteries that last longer, that weigh less to power its cars. So um, the, the two are going to be combining their knowledge and working together to help push forward battery technology um, and look into energy management optimization and battery weight improvement. And it's going to be shifting from the current cell chemistries, which use advanced lithium ion to an all solid state design, which could not only double the energy density of the batteries, it could also make them a lot less risky of, of kind of catching fire and things like that. So um, again, really exciting stuff, all very futuristic. Um, I'm, I appreciate you giving me the time to give this little synopsis, Tom, because I can see you're falling asleep. So I'll <laughs> hand over to you for something that's more about today's technology. Yeah, well, um, I mean, today's technology or 15 years ago technology, I wanted to talk about Eva Air um, and specifically flight uh, Bravo Romeo 10. So it was due to depart from Taipei Airport at 11.55 on Tuesday, actually left at um, half past midnight pretty much on Wednesday and flew for 10 hours and 16 minutes back in time to land in Vancouver International Airport at 6.43 on Tuesday. All quite normal there. But basically what happened was this flight, which was operated by a Boeing 777, exited runway 08 left in Vancouver onto taxiway Mike 5. Everything still going absolutely fine. But then the crew had to make a very sharp turn from Mike 5 onto Mike. And amid heavy snow and low visibility, the flight crew essentially overcooked the sharp turn. Um, so what happened was the aircraft's nose wheel actually went over the edge of the taxiway, which we know isn't great at the best of times, and it got stuck in the soft ground adjacent to the taxiway, which I'm guessing, you know, it would have been quite soft because of the, the snow and rain, maybe. Um, it but anyway, very snowy. 
It did. It looked very snowy. Uh, I'm surprised. Uh, um, it's interesting because if you look at the Vancouver International Airport Twitter, they don't mention this incident anywhere. They say, oh, our snow preparation teams are ready and uh, they say watch out for traffic caused by the snow, but they don't make any mention of this this incident. But um, Everair did make a mention of the incident. They released a statement which said our company's Taipei Vancouver flight BR10 landed safely at 1842 local time on November 29th. The, vis the visibility was poor due to the heavy snow in the area. The nose wheel of the aircraft deviated from the taxiway service. Both the crew and the plane were safe. Um, this is translated from Chinese, so it may not be exactly word for word, um, but Google <laughs> Translate is a saint. Um, it's interesting, though, that it says the crew and the plane were safe, but no mention of the passengers uh, in that. But basically... Um, <laughs> All the important things were safe. Yeah. <laughs> Following the incident, the airline and airport arranged buses to transfer the 253-odd passengers and crew to the terminal, while work to recover the aircraft began. So at least these people, you know, they, they managed to get off the plane. They weren't allowed to just sit there and wait. But I guess also, you know, they've got to try and get as much weight off of the aircraft as possible because it makes it lighter mm. and easier to get out. Um, but it's interesting because they said um, 250 passengers and three infants, which, um, you know, there's 323 seats in the cabin. Um, so the flight load factor was only around 78%, um, not as high as it could have been, I guess. Um, mm. At the time of writing and though. speaking, yeah, not bad, not 100% like Ryanair or 97. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, at the time of writing and at the time of recording this, it's not immediately clear whether the aircraft had been successfully recovered. Um, it's still in Vancouver. And when I last looked, um, the flight stats app from Sirium said that it hadn't been cancelled, but had an estimated delay of 12 hours. Um, the aircraft involved is uh, Bravo 16707, and that's a 15.59-year-old um, 777-300ER. It first flew on May 2nd, 2007, and was delivered to Eva Air a week later, and its current market value is estimated at $29.97 million, $29.97 million even. <laughs> um, and so far, you know, it's flown 73,825 hours, which equates to 8.42 years in the sky. And this was across 9,783 flight cycles, because you know I love my statistics. I know you do. I know <laughs> you do. Well, something I love, um, which is not statistics, is um, airworthiness directives. Um, I oh, do kind I of tend them. to hang out on the um, the FAA and the ASA um, AD systems quite a bit. Most of them are quite boring and, uh, you know, just little components that need adjusting or things that need popping into the manual. Um, but a couple of really interesting ones popped up over the last week or so that I wanted to share. Um, the first one involves one of our favourite aircraft, the Airbus A220. Um, it was revealed by the FAA that there have been two nearly catastrophic incidents involving the A220 and the inadvertent engagement of its autopilot function. Um, so unusually, the, the regulator issued an emergency airworthiness directive to address this issue. Normally, airworthiness directives go to a notice of proposed rulemaking where people get to comment. And then if it is adopted, you know, it's a couple of months down the line. But this was urgent enough to be brought straight in without any consultation at all. 
The FEA said that actually there have been 38 in-service events relating to this problem, two of which were described as being nearly catastrophic. So the problem involves the inadvertent engagement of the autopilot when the pilots are attempting to engage the autothrottle. So this is usually during the takeoff phase or sometimes when re-engaging the autothrottle during other stages of flight. Um, the FAA said that it's basically a design flaw with the control panel of the A220 that makes it very easily easy to mistakenly engage the autopilot when you don't want to. Um, so they went on to describe one of the close calls, which occurred in September this year. They didn't name the airline or airport, um, but it stated that there was an incident where an A220 was taking off and the autothrottle disengaged. Flight crew attempted to re-engage the autothrottle, but accidentally engaged the autopilot instead. The end result was that the A220 rotated or took off, shall we say, uh, below the V1 speed. Um, this kind of low energy takeoff is very dangerous. It could see the aircraft failing to climb quickly enough and therefore impacting things around nearby or it could force it into a stall. Um, so obviously something they want to avoid, you can't redesign the A220 control panel overnight. Um, obviously, you know, so so what do they do? What's the solution for this? Um, well, it's a sticker in the manual. <laughs> so um, basically, the, the Airworthiness Directive says that they've all got to update their aircraft flight manuals with a warning statement that reads, warning, autothrottle, oh, sorry, autopilot engagement during takeoff roll can result in premature rotation, possibly leading to tail strike, inability to climb or loss of control. Immediate crew intervention is required. Um, so basically, it's just about making pilots mindful that this switch is there and they might get it accidentally. Um, it seems a bit like sticking a Band-Aid over a burst pipe, but I guess it's the best they can do for now. Um, the FAA, this was first instigated by Transport Canada. The FAA went one step further and said to pilots of the A220, they must not engage autopilot below 400 feet above ground level, and they must not use autopilot um, at less than 80 feet above ground level. So... Um well, it's in in interesting if it was instigated by Transport Canada then, because that would kind of lead you to think who it might possibly be, even if we don't know <laughs> where it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still, anyway, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I guess maybe there'll be a, a redeveloped version of the control panel that protects that um, that switch somehow. So there was a second one that I wanted to mention as well. And you'll like this one, Tom, because it's your favourite aircraft. Well, no, um, maybe I won't then if it's that. <laughs> <laughs> the A380 is having some problems with its evacuation slides. Um, A380s that have been in storage for extended periods, when so they're evacuated slides, yeah, basically, when their evacuation slides are tested after coming out of storage, they're splitting at the seams. Oops. Now, Airbus A380s have a lot of evacuation slides, 16 in total. There's three on the upper deck, five on the lower, on both sides of the airplane. Um, it's the three on the upper deck that are causing the problem, as well as the M3 slide, which runs from the overwing emergency exit kind of down to the ground. Um, so, EASA issued an airworthiness directive that came into effect on November the 15th, mandating the replacement of these parts um, because some of the slides are splitting at the seams. And it's not a fault of the, the slide particularly or the aircraft particularly. It's just an effect of the long-term storage in hot conditions. Um, 
the directive says that occurrences were reported where during the overhaul of Airbus A380 emergency slides after return to service following a parking and storage period, local scenes opened during inflation. Although the investigation is ongoing, it is suspected that the environmental conditions during parking and storage are the key contributing factors to the degradation of the slide seams. In particular, exposure to a, exposure to a combination of moisture from condensation during previous flight operations and heat during parking and storage causes the seams to degrade in the inflatable structure of a slide, increasing with the amount of time it is parked and stored for. So the longer the plane's been stored, the faster the operators are going to have to replace these slides. Not a huge deal. Now they're aware of it. They can obviously test them and find out. But I thought it was really interesting that the optimal conditions to park a plane in, um, you know, that's why we see all the A380s at Tyrrell and Alice Springs and the Mojave Desert. It's great for the plane, but not so much for the slides. So um, Mm. another interesting problem with returning aircraft to storage like we've never seen before. Yeah, I mean, I guess at least they're testing them when they're coming out of storage, so they find out if there's the issue right away. Um, but, you know, I, the, the reason they have so many exits, I think, as well is, you know, if if one doesn't function as expected, you know, you've got the other ones to go with. And that's why when they're doing the testing, they, they like, block off a certain number of exits, but they don't tell the passengers which ones they are, um, so they can see, see if that still works. Um, I wanted to dive into an area of aviation that I'm not particularly um, clued up on, um, but it's um, something quite interesting. So um, obviously, you know, the Tata group at the start of the year took over Air India. Um, They also have an interest in Vistara. And now, along with Singapore Airlines, they've announced that they're going to merge Air India and Vistara, which are the two full-service airlines for India. Um, but, you know, it, it's quite interesting because we already saw speculation that this was going to happen, um, but it was now confirmed and it was actually confirmed by Singapore Airlines. And, you know, when you look at the ownership structure of the airlines, it makes sense. But at the time I was like, what does Singapore Airlines have to do with this? Um so it's quite interesting because, um, you know, Vistara, it was formed as a joint venture between Tata Group and Singapore Airlines. Um, and, you know, it is quite interesting because they had a, a decent stake in Vistara. Well, now that they're merging these two uh, really big airlines in India, uh, Singapore Airlines is going to invest $250 million into the merger. And this is going to give it a 25.1% um, stake in the sort of new Air India Vistara group. Um, it's quite interesting because uh, Go Chon Fong, Chun Fong, who's um, the chief executive officer at Singapore Airlines, and I sincerely apologize if I've butchered saying that name. Um, he said, our collaboration with Tata Sons to set up Vistara in 2013 resulted in a market-leading full-service carrier. With this merger, we have an exciting opportunity to deepen our relationship and participate directly in an exciting new growth phase in India's aviation market. Um, so it's quite interesting because, like I said, Singapore Airlines is going to inject some more capital, but also Tartar is going to uh, put a bit more capital into it to to grow this. Um, I was reading that, you know, um, overall Singapore Airlines is own uh, stake in the group is going to fall uh, smaller than it was in Vistara, but um, they're they're happy with that because they say. Um, it's a smaller stake, but it's going to be sort of four to five times. The the airline is going to be four to five times what they were in before. So um, it's still sort of the numbers add up for them. Um, 
I can't wait to see what it comes with because, um, you know, they're going to have a combined fleet of more than 215 aircraft, which, um, you know, in Air India and Vistara um, already, they're pretty big players. You know, Vistara has just started its um, international services to Frankfurt and Paris in the last few years. And uh, Air India is like the Indian airline, although they haven't been doing so well financially, which is why this has all come about. But um the the one thing that I'm interested to see in is if there's any sort of um, regulatory hurdles to all of this because um, you know if you t- glance to, over to Korea for example you've got Korean Air and Asiana uh, are trying to merge and it looked like everything was all happy there and then. Um, the UK government stepped in and said, oh, um, we're worried about the competition here because then there will only be um, this one group as a as an option between the UK and Korea. Um, so, you know, I'm interested to see what the, the sort of regulatory fallout from this is. Um, I really don't know if there will be one uh, or what it will be, but um, I guess as we love to say on the podcast, watch this space and we'll let you know. Mm. Yeah, I think it will be interesting because that will make only one full service choice in India in terms of local airlines. Um, There's plenty of low cost choice, but that will be only one full service choice. Um, Although I have to say, I think there's enough competition from foreign airlines going into India to maybe sway the the issue of no, not enough choice. Um, But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I'm a bit sad about is they kind of sort of seem to suggest that they would go for the Air India branding um, because they said it would be a larger Air India group in one of the press releases, which makes me a bit sad because I really like the Vistara um, branding all over. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. At least Air India takes some cues from what Vistara does so well with its onboard product and its lovely styling and everything. And, uh, you know, learn something from that because I think they can go a long way to improve in that respect. Um, Mm. Anyway, moving along from that, I wanted to talk about um, a couple of little planes that are not being built by Boeing or Airbus because we talk about Airbus and Boeing an awful lot. Occasionally, we talk about Embraer or ATR, um, but there are more manufacturers than just that. In fact, there are two who are up and coming and don't get a lot of time on the podcast. But I thought, you know, there's been some fairly big news in the last week or so. Let's give them a shout. Um, So the first is the MC-21, which is a Russian design narrow body. Um, and you and I had the pleasure of seeing it at this year's Farnborough International Air Show. Um, it's mm, a pretty it was standard... A pretty, was it? Um, no, it wasn't at Farnborough. It was, it was in Dubai oh, was last it in Dubai? year that we saw Dubai, it. Yeah, I knew we'd Farnborough seen it somewhere. was very anti-Russian this year. Oh, of course, because of the thing, yeah. Mm. Uh, I knew we'd seen it somewhere. Yeah. No, it was, it was longer ago at Dubai. But it's a pretty standard, you know, narrow-body aircraft. It seats up to 211 passengers. It has a range of around 4,000 miles. Interestingly, it has a wider cabin than anything else in its class, um, which was demonstrated with seats and me trying to squeeze past (laughs) a catering trolley, which uh, a person with a smaller bottom would have been able to manage, but I did struggle slightly. Anyway, that's beside the point. It's estimated entry into service date has been pushed back a bit. It could now be as late as 2025, but things are moving along. Um, 
So it was spotted this week in Rossia Airlines livery. So it's a prototype NC-21 that's going to be operated by the Irkut Corporation, which is a UAC subsidiary, to train Rossia Airlines flight instructors. Um, it bears the registration number 73054, um, and it flew out from Moscow to Yulanovsk on 10th of November, where it got its new livery. Um, it's going to become the flagship type for the Aeroflot group. They've got 210 on order, and they this aircraft is one of three prototypes that will be painted into the carrier's grey, red and white livery. Um, the one that's just been painted is actually the only one of the three prototypes that still has the original Pratt & Whitney PW1000G engines. The other two MC21 test models that are registered 73051 and 73055, they've both been retrofitted with the homegrown Avia Digital uh, PD14 engines that are made by U UAC. Um, so they're all hoping to get certified by the end of 22. Um, but I, I have to say I have my doubts. Like, it's nearly December. In fact, it is December by the time this podcast goes out. So things are not moving along as fast as they could be, but we'll have to wait and see. Another plane that has been certified, or at least partly, and, and has been racking up additional certifications in the last week, is the Chinese narrowbody known as the Comac C919. Um, so Comac announced this week on its official WeChat page that the Civil Aviation Administration of China had issued the C919 program production certificate um, on November the 29th. So in all, there are three certificates that are needed for an aircraft in China before it can enter into commercial operations. One is the type certificate, um, which it got, I think, a few weeks ago. Um, it was around the end of September, I believe. One is the production certificate, which is what it's just got now. And the last one is the airworthiness certificate, which it doesn't have yet, but it will have soon. Um, so the production certificate, what that says is that the regulator recognises the quality assurance for the manufacturing of this aircraft type and that the C919 is now allowed to be mass produced. So another big step forward. Another thing that happened was it passed its T5 test this week. Um, this is a type rating training specification test. So it involves a full-scale review of COMAX C919 pilot training. It's taken around two months to complete and now it's done. There are 15 pilots, which include COMAX flight instructors, who are C919 type rated. So, you know, all kind of big strides forward to getting the aircraft um, out into service. Most Excitingly, the launch customer for the aircraft has arrived at Comax Delivery Centre uh, just in the last couple of days to undertake their acceptance inspections. Uh, China Eastern is the launch customer, of course, and they hope to receive their first before the end of the year. Um, now, again, it is December, but I have much greater hope in this happening before the end of the year than the other thing we mentioned. Um, so basically, in China, things all work a bit differently. It's so exciting and interesting to watch how this process plays out. So the aircraft needs to be completely ready with all assembly work finished, all the applicable service bulletins implemented, all the functional testing finished before the customer arrives. When the customer turns up, that's when you know delivery is imminent. So this C919 was spotted at Comax facility at the end of um, about November the 22nd with the China Eastern livery. It previously, of course, had the Comac livery when it was doing its flight testing. Um, we know now that it has conducted its final production 
induction flight, which is a prerequisite to, before it can be delivered. And we also know that it's going to have the registration number B919A, um, but it's going to keep its like temporary. That. Yeah, I like it too. It's cool, isn't it? Would have been cool if it could have been C919A, but yeah. obviously the B prefix it's not is Canadian. The, yeah, it's the Chinese thing. Um, it's going to keep its temporary registration number, which is B001J, until the title's transferred. But I am very excited because I really think we could see it handed over within the next week or so. Mm. Well, I mean, as we always say, watch the space and hopefully we've got an update next week's podcast. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I do think that's all we've got time for today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. And thanks for listening. Bye.